everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Robert Gulrich about his just-released novel, The Dying of the Light. This book begins and ends with a house, more properly a former plantation, the largest in the Commonwealth of Virginia circa 1915. Saratoga is the ancestral property of the Cook family, whose future depends on the brilliant marriage of their beautiful daughter, Deanna. But when we first see the house in 1991, its circumstances have changed. It begins with a house, and it ends in ashes. There's your opening, you think. You can wrap it up and go home now, phone it in, and you haven't even set foot on the property. But it's true. That is the complete family history, except, except... Between the building in 1748 and the burning, somebody, or a number of people, people who weren't supposed to die, died in this house in a disastrous fire on December 5th, 1941. This is all you know, all anybody knows, all there is to be known. The rest is detail, just local color. Of course, that's why they sent you, to sift through the ashes, to somehow find a bone in the ash, a bone that would unravel a mystery that has stood silent and unbreakable for almost 60 years. You are standing at dawn on the prow of an oyster boat you've hired for the day, moving, trailing a wide wake in a calm black river, under a sky the color of unpolished silver, to get there, the only boat on the lazy river, the fish running somewhere else, finally to reach the house, the remains of history, the remnants of her life. You are trespassing even now, The house, barely glimpsed from the prow of the oyster boat where you stand, making its slow way down from Port Royal, the house, even in silhouette, is huge, unimaginably large, four-square. Saratoga, the name coming from the old Indian language, means the hillsides of the quiet river, the hunting grounds by the water. It's not as though you haven't done your homework. And now, please join me in welcoming Robert Gulrick. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you, Carol, and I'm glad to be here. You're the author of four novels and a memoir. Uh, how did you get started on a writing career? <laughs> well, I worked in advertising for 30-some years, and I was 54, and just like in Mad Men, um, it's a young people's game, and I got fired. Um and I lay on my sofa for six months, weeping and convulsing, and wondering what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I had previously, some years before, started a novel. Um, and so I thought, well, I might as well try to finish that. And so I did very quickly in about six months. And it uh was called Bitter Cold. And I had an agent, and she said, that is a horrible title for a book. Um, and she said, I think you should call it A Reliable Wife. Um, and I said, oh, well, that's a nice title. So she started sending it out to publishers. And while she was doing that, I sat down and wrote a memoir of my childhood, which I called The End of the World as We Know It. And she absolutely could not sell my novel. Um, And in a process that took two years, uh, she sent it to, as she said, 
every publisher there was, and nobody wanted it. And um, so I said to her finally, uh, well, if you can't sell the novel, can you try to sell the memoir? Um, and she did in a week to Algonquin. And um, so they were preparing that for publication. And I said to Chuck Adams, my editor, uh, would you take a look at my novel, which they had rejected already two years before. And uh, I said, because I don't see what's so wrong with it. And he looked at it and he called me up and he said, you know, I think that there's not so much wrong with it either and we'll publish this book. So it happened that my second book that I wrote was published before um, A Reliable Wife. And then Reliable Wife came out and it sold something like 1.3 million copies. Um, and so um, that's how I got started. A disaster, a disaster followed by um, an enormous whirlwind. That's actually a very heartening story, ultimately. I'm sure those two years were pretty horrible. Um, but I loved your reliable yes, they life. Were, they were <laughs> horrible. There was nothing, it's nothing like rejection after rejection after rejection. Um, and it's, it's terrible for the writer. And it's also embarrassing for the agent um, who tells you in the beginning, oh, I love this book and I'm going to sell it for you and it's going to be great. And then she can't and she feels terrible and you feel terrible. And uh, so ultimately we were all quite happy. <laughs> um and um, then I, uh, when it was published, um, everybody had the feeling that it was going to be sort of a runaway phenomenon. Um, and I left New York um, and moved back to Virginia because I didn't want to be part of that sort of New York literary cocktail party scene. Um, and get caught up in that. Um, so I moved back to Virginia, and I moved back to, not to where I was born, which was in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, I moved back to the Northern Neck, which is uh, almost on, to the, on the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and I found this wonderful old farmhouse that was kind of falling apart. Um, and I moved in and, uh, did nothing for, uh, 10 years, but, uh, write novels and fix the house up. And in, in the end, I had written, uh, two more novels. I'd written Heading Out to Wonderful and The Fall of Princes. And uh, also, the house was just a gleaming, wonderful place. It was my happiest place I've ever lived. Um, 
and I had my best workroom I've ever had. Um, and the owners liked it so much that uh, they said, you know, we think we'll take this house back and live here. Um, so they booted me out, and I moved into, uh, I, I, I had to move very quickly, and my only um, criterion was I had to live on the river, um, because I had fallen in love with the Rappahannock River, which runs through there. And um, so the only thing I could find was a house which I called Tiny House, um, a real small cottage, um, which was smack dab on the river. And there I wrote uh, The Dying of the Light. Ah, that explains the importance of the river in that novel, which... Uh We'll get to in just a little bit. Um, what a nerve, though, to let you put all that work in the house and then take it back. I mean, that's really terrible. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's, it's the renter's dilemma, you know. I mean, you, uh, you, you make it the way you want it, and then it turns out it's the way the renters, the owners, want it, too. So um, you get booted. <clears throat> and um, you have to make your own way again in the world. So tell us a little bit about the um, other two novels, Heading Out to Wonderful, which is historical fiction, and The Fall of Princes, which is more contemporary, um, although people like my son think the 1980s are already history. <laughs> but, right, exactly. Um, and then we'll get to The Dying of the Light, because I really do want to focus on that. Okay, well, I'll tell you a bit about Heading Out to Wonderful first, um, which is in a way my favorite novel of mine. Um, Heading Out to Wonderful is based on a true story, um, and it the actual story took place on a tiny island in Greece where I lived just after I graduated from university um, and um, I was told when I lived there that there had only been one crime ever committed there and that a friend of mine um, who was now who was then in his 30s had been involved in it as a child um, and so naturally, I was curious, and I went to him, and I said, tell me about the story. Um, and he said, no, absolutely not. I won't talk about it. I've never talked about it, and I won't talk about it now. But I kept hounding him in that way that I have. And eventually, he said to me, he said, okay, I'll tell you the story, and there are certain conditions. I'll tell it once. You can interrupt me. Um, when I'm done, you can't ask me any questions. And I'll never tell it again. Um, so he told me the story. It took about two hours. And when he was done, um, I thought to myself, that is the best story I've ever heard in my life. And... 
Um, that was in about 1975, let's say. And it took 20 years. And the story never left me. It just never left me. Um, and it's not, and it, and finally, um, I wrote the story, um, when I felt that I really understood the motivations of the people involved. Um, and people are always horrified um, with that novel and um, write to me and say, why did you make the little boy observe the crime? And um, my, my answer is, well, that's what happened. Um, but also I think it's essential for the tragedy for the true Greek tragedy of the novel that, and I'm also quite interested in the notion of child abuse and, um, it's a true example of child abuse. And that's to me what that novel is about. Um, it's about, um, passion and sensuality and in a way redemption, which I'm always interested in, but it's also about child abuse. <clears throat> there is a certain darkness uh, to the relationships in all your novels. I mean, of course, that's part of what novels do, isn't it? They explore the depths of human experience. But um, I did notice that. I mean, that's present in A Reliable Wife. It's present in The Dying of the Light. And I was, as I was trying to come up with questions to ask you, I wanted, um, I found it difficult in part because once you get, I mean, the, those relationships are the heart of the story. They're what draw you in. They're what make you relate to the characters. And yet it's so easy if we just talk about the events to um, give away too much, basically. Um, where would you put the fall of princes in that? I, I certainly saw it in all three of your historicals, at least the description, because I haven't read Heading Out to Wonderful yet. Do you think it's true? Well, starters? excuse me? Do you think it's tr What's did, true? What I just said. Um... Well, you know, to me, my novels are essentially about redemption. Mm -hmm. They're always about redemption. I think, <clears throat> I'm sorry, um, that reliable life is about redemption. Um, it's about Ralph's redemption, and it's about Catherine's redemption. Um, and in a strange sort of way, um, even though it ends tragically, um, I think Heading Out to Wonderful is about redemption, even though they only know it for a moment. Um, and um, as for The Fall of Princes, um, people always think it's autobiographical, although it's not. Um, but we all in New York 
led a rather helter-skelter and somewhat dangerous life um, in New York in the 80s, and you couldn't help but observe um, this uh, kind of uh, a cliffhanging uh, existence. A friend of mine once said, of course I live on the edge, where else can you get a better view? And uh, I think in Fall of Princes, they all live on the edge. Um, and there's a wonderfully moving moment to me in Fall of Princes where he meets an old friend for drinks who's recalling a moment in his uh, younger days when he danced with somebody he was really in love with. Um, and he said, you know, um, I think I would have died at that moment and been happy. Um, I really do. And you believe him. Um, and I love Fall of Princes because it is uh, for the very reason that my readers got mad at me um, because it is a departure in style and um, um, and in the arc of the story and in the structure of the book and it's not so uh, costume drama as the rest of them and as the dying of the light is. Um, and it was great uh, fun for me to write it. Um, and, you know, everybody said that it was basically um, exploring territory that Jay McInerney and Brett Easton Ellis had already uh, covered. And my feeling was that those two were writing something as they were living it. They were part of the scene. And I was um, exploring it later, passion, recollected, and tranquility. And I had quite a different take on it than they did. Um, so I thought, writing it, I knew I was walking into their territory, but I thought I had something new to say about it, um, which was a kind of regret and a kind of, again, redemption um, for the survivors um, of that era in which many didn't survive. That's a good point. And I like the emphasis on redemption. That, that rings well with me. I mean, I think I agree that that's what A Reliable Wife is out about and what this novel is about. So let's talk about The Dying of the Light. Um, as I mentioned, one of the elements of the novel that really fascinates me is that the setting, the house and the river, are in their own ways as much characters in the, the novel as um, as the people that we meet. They're, they're so 
uh, alive almost, uh, at least in the main character's perception of them, especially Deanna's perception of them. Um, could you talk about that a little bit, about the history of the house and how it influences the story? Well, let me just say, um, before I go into that, that you could say in Reliable Life that the snow was a character in that book, um, that they're trapped in this snowy landscape. And the book talks endlessly about the snow that surrounds them. So it's not a new thing for me to talk about a natural feature that becomes a character in the book. And in this case, Deanna is fascinated uh, by the river uh, in the way I was when I lived next to it. I could spend hours and hours looking at the river um, and watching the light change and watching the tides come in and go out and watching the birds build their nests and watching the uh, eagles fly high up in the pines. Um, it was just a beautiful thing, watching the sunset. And, uh, you know, you can say in a way, all sunsets are the same, but they're not. Um, and every day, uh, facing the river and seeing the sunset was a miraculous thing. And she feels it too. Um, and I was inspired very much by an old friend I have um, who has a house in East Hampton. And she wakes up quite, quite early to watch the sun rise over the ocean. And then she goes back to sleep for a little while. And then she wakes up to have her coffee um, uh, in bed. Um, so um, she's somebody like Deanna um, who just wants to see the glory of that moment um, every day and builds it into her sort of sleep habit. Um, but in this case, um, her family has lived by the river for hundreds of years. And, you know, many of Deanna's uh, life events take place at the river. Um, and as for the house, <laughs> this was so interesting. Um, because I began to get fascinated by the house. That part of Virginia is filled with um, amazing houses, um, but um, it also, um, I lived in a little town called Weems, <laughs> which was um, um, part of it was part of the estate of somebody who was called King Carter in the 1700s. 
and uh, he owned all of the land and was the most powerful man in Virginia. And uh, his family obviously kind of dissipated over the years and everything scattered. But one thing that's left is a little chapel, a Georgian chapel that uh, many architectural critics say is the most perfect example of uh, Georgian architecture in America. And I would go there frequently, um, I don't know, every two weeks. Um, and there's not much to see, but then there's everything to see. You know, it's just perfection. And even though the house is huge, um, the inspiration for it is this tiny chapel. Um, and then I uh, discovered St. Giles' house in England, uh, which is the ancestral home of the Earls of Shaftesbury. So I started uh, getting fascinated by that and reading about that and who the architect was and they had a history where the house had fallen into ruin uh, not ruin but general decay and uh, an unlikely heir emerged and he had uh, spent his uh, spent the 80s in New York, uh, being a drug addict and a DJ. Um, and then he was suddenly made the Earl and returned um, to England and sort of cleaned up his act and restored the house. And this uh, inspired me because the house in the book is, is modeled after St. Giles' house. Um, to do the same thing that he did, which was to restore the house. And uh, I just got fascinated with wallpaper and <laughs> uh, paint colors and all that. And it was about the time she restores it, about the time that Colonial Williamsburg had just been restored. And so she is able to use many of the same workmen um, that they had used and my grandmother um, who restored our house um, in Virginia about the same time although quite a different and far less grand house uh, took advantage of the Colonial Williams workmen to restore um, certain parts of our house so it all just was a great confluence of personal and historical and architectural interests. Um, and the house becomes a great uh, palette for the action of the story. That 
But yes. isn't that all fascinating? <laughs> it is, absolutely. <laughs> it's all fascinating. Um, and it comes across very clearly in the story uh, as well. So tell us about your main character, Deanna Cook, Copperton Cook. Uh, she's a beautiful debutante when we meet her, born with the century, as the book says. Um, how did she become your uh, central person for this to tell this story the person who restores the estate basically i love strong women um i'd love to write about strong women and uh she is uh, you know um stephen vincent today described the uh, southern women as the velvet sheathing the steel demurely and she's like that, um, even though she may at times appear weak or even submissive, um, she never is. Um, and she is the one who, of all of them, survives. And uh, she survives everything. And born with the century and, um, you know, lives on and on and on. And I just love the fact that as the book progresses, she grows stronger and stronger and stronger and is able to confront a lot of conflicting situations and becomes more and more in control of her own life and able to direct others around her to uh, to uh, do her bidding. And I also think that um, I liked her because uh, while she seems at the beginning um, to be a kind of blank, a sort of cipher. Um, she is an intensely intelligent and also an intensely passionate woman, uh, both uh, intellectually passionate and also sexually passionate. And to me, um, Sex is the first language. People always accuse me of, at my age, writing so much about sex, but I do. I really do believe that sex is the first language, and it's just—it's our basic, it's our most basic way of communicating. And um, she finds uh, in her life. Um, that it, with uh, her husband, um, it comes to mean one thing, and later in her life, it comes to mean something quite different and much more beautiful. I didn't see her as a cipher, even at the beginning. She seemed to me to be a young girl who had um she was just in a very difficult position her parents had made it clear that like any princess even though she doesn't have a title she's expected to marry for money and they send her off on this circuit of parties where 
she basically has a tag around her neck, you know, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> right. And she's ordered to settle for the highest bidder, basically. And that is yeah. Captain Copperton, who turns out not to be the ideal husband for probably pretty much any woman, but certainly for Deanna. Tell us a bit about him. Well, he's nothing but a dollar sign. Um, and he plays his role. He does save them from financial ruin. Um, but he's kind of Trumpian in that he thinks because of that, he owns her. Um, and is kind of shocked to find out that he does not own her at all. Um, that she's very much her own woman. And the only thing that comes to unite them, um, in any way is the birth of their son, Ashton. Um, he, he has one virtue, which is that he is a surprisingly good father. He's pretty much a horror at everything else. Uh, particularly to Deanna's parents. Um, but he genuinely loves his son. And through her love for her son, um, which is not easy for her, um, and his love they are able to enjoy the only moments of calm that they ever find. Um, and um, then he dies and really, really, really performs his coolest act to her. He does, although my, maybe I'm not remembering this correctly, but what I recall is that he interfered with her relationship with her son, especially early on as well, as being yes. nasty to her personally. Yes, and uh, is trying to, they're kind of competing for the son's love. She wants to raise him in a certain way, and Copperton wants to raise him in a certain, in another way. Uh, and each one uh, wants not just to love him, but to own him. And uh, I think uh, Deanna is befuddled by this and frustrated, um, but it's Copperton's way. He He just wants to own what is in his... Uh, power to buy or sell, you know. I suppose it gives him a sense of control. I mean, he he seems to be a person who is the kind of person who is always fighting his way into society. He doesn't have manners. He doesn't have birth. He doesn't have anything that this Virginia society really respects, right? Except no, he has nothing. He has nothing, and I think he's full of uh, self-loathing um, because of that. 
um, he knows that they all look down on him. He knows that um, he will never have a place among them, um, no matter how rich he is and no matter how, you know, he's, he, he, he keeps reminding the father that um, he keeps reminding Deanna's father that he owns the chair that the father sits in, that he owns the food on the table, that, you know, the father lives only by his um, grace. And it's, you know, he keeps, he keeps playing this cruel game with them. Um, and it's both so vulgar to them um, but it's also just mean-spirited. And uh, part of it is that he knows that he lacks um, everything that would win their respect. And of course, you know, people do this because by doing it, he guarantees that they're going to feel resentful. They're going to dislike him even more. Um, although he probably is doing it precisely to get their respect because he doesn't believe that he can get it any other way. Well, yes. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't understand what it would take to be the kind of person that they are <laughs> because he, he, um, he has no he has no history and they value history above everything history and blood and he has neither you know he's kind of the Gatsby of the book um, and uh, you know when he he loves uh, Ashton and sits him out at the age of seven with custom-made boots and riding equipment and saddles from Europe and all that. And it's just, you know, they would put him on a saddle from the tack room and a pony and whatever. And, but it's not, uh, Copperton's way. Um, Copperton has to buy him an expensive pony and the best saddle and all of the perfect gear and all of that. And it's so nouveau riche. It's just, it's just kind of appalling to them. You know, compare it, compare it in the book with, um, Deanna's childhood where she was running around in blue jeans and, um, and getting her hair cut like a boy's. So I should tell our readers that we haven't even gotten to the, I wouldn't say the real meat of the story, but the, we're only at the very beginning of the story. There's a whole rich second part, um, which we're probably not going to get to discuss. And so they should absolutely go and read the book um, to find out about that second part of Diana's career that you mentioned in passing, where she has a lover who uh, relates to her in a very different way. Um, and, you know, she, she really comes into her own in the second part of the book. But are there, there's also a very rich range of characters, which are, for me, the, the best part of the book. But 
Are there any parts of it that you would like to mention, characters that I haven't asked you about um, before we end up? There's a wonderful librarian who comes to save their library named Lucius Walter. I love to write about eccentrics. And he is truly eccentric. And um, uh, he's a kind of messy um, librarian who observes everything and uses it ultimately to kind of try to blackmail her. Um, and uh, has a disastrous ending in the book. Um, and then there is a wonderfully eccentric um, decorator who comes from New York named Rose DeLille. And the model for her, in my mind, she looks exactly like Dame Edith Sitwell. <laughs> and that, that took some research, too. Um, just the photo, the beaten photographs of Davy, the Sitwell, and all of that. Um, she wears, you know, Chinese robes and turbans and big rings and huge jewelry. Everything about her is just larger than life. Um, and the only person in the book that she truly loves and befriends is Priscilla, the cook, um, who uh, just treats her like an ordinary human being and just doesn't pay any attention to her eccentricities, and they become great friends. The one thing I would also mention about the book <coughs> is that <coughs> there is a strong um, theme throughout the book which is um, racism and race equality um, in the first half of the century in the South. Um, and, you know, when you're born in the South, you're sort of born into an immediate guilt um, and an immediate longing for the kind of life that that awful situation provided, you know, the, the care of servants and the, the constant um, attention paid. Um, you always hear people in the South say, well, she's just like family. Well, they were, in a way, and um, Priscilla and her husband, Clarence, are really just like family, and, and they uh, do more than just make the meals. Um, they really support Diana when she is emotionally and financially so unstable that she cannot do it alone. I mean, she's got this huge house, and it's really Priscilla who runs it. Um, so I think that's a whole theme that we didn't 
have a chance to discuss, but it's very important in the book. And there's this picnic scene uh, in which all of that comes together, the eccentricities of Rose and Lucius and the the love, uh, the various love um, matches that are at work in the house and the difference between white tenant farmers and black tenant farmers and how Diana comes to realize the sudden change in the racial status of um, black people in the South. I agree. That is a very important theme, and I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, there is so much that we could talk about. We could talk twice as long easily um, and still mm-hmm. be mining um, things from the book. Uh, it is a wonderful book, and your previous books Thank you. are wonderful as well. So what would you like readers to take away from The Dying of the Light? Well, I think you take away that uh, resilience leads to grace then grace leads to redemption. And that is something that is in all of my books, um, but I think is especially in this one. And I love that book, this book for that reason. And I hope readers will follow it long enough to feel that in their hearts and um, come a little closer toward grace themselves. That's truly beautiful. Uh, I couldn't put it down, so I have to say I think they will. Okay. (laughs) So um, are you working on something else now or are you focused on, this book has only just come out. Um, I'm actually writing a little, uh, well, short, 200-page, 250-page book for my French publisher, which will be published only in France, um, unless, I don't know, it it may eventually be published in America, um, which is kind of a sequel to The Fall of Princes, um, and um, I also have um, two ideas for novels, uh, one of which I've written, um, I don't know, 200 pages of, um, so we'll see what happens, you know? There are always things to do. That's the wonderful thing about being a writer. That's great. I wish you all success with those projects. I hope we get to talk again one day. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Oh, you've been so sweet and kind. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. And today I've been talking with Robert Gulrich about his latest novel, The Dying of the Light, released earlier this month. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com. 
where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.